thing on streaming. So our next speaker is Tonalyn Ford Rutherford. She was born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, has a BA in history and MA in humanities from Brigham Young University. And, um, oh, I should have asked you how to pronounce it since you served your mission in Stockholm, Sweden. <laughs> so, right. I mean, it's close. I know close. it's close I languages. Could, I could give you the Swedish version. Yeah. Uh, uh, she probably wouldn't like the Swedish version. <laughs> so that's okay. Um, anyway, we're really pleased to hear from her, and I'll turn the time over to her. All right, I am excited to be here, and I'm really thrilled that they did the snacks first. I have a testimony of snacks, and so I'm glad you're all fed and ready to go. Uh, so I am very grateful for the opportunity to talk about my very favorite subject. Um, Although I've studied Mormonism in India extensively, I approach the opportunity to speak about Indian Latter-day Saint women with some trepidation. I'm not of Indian descent, and I can't even claim to have served a mission in India. Furthermore, I acknowledge I speak from a place of privilege. I've had the opportunity to visit India several times and personally interview and observe numerous Indian members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, my goal today is not to speak for Mormon women in India or for Mormon women that are Indian in the diaspora. My objective, rather, is to model how we can better listen to and understand Mormon women from contexts very different than our own, and more importantly, to model how listening to and understanding Mormon women of the global church helps us to more clearly see the Savior as he is. I have been drawn to Mormon's profound sermon found in Moroni chapter 7 in preparation for this. And although Mormon's sermon on faith, hope, and charity isn't addressing Mormon women in India, I find it's an important resource for understanding and navigating cultural difference as disciples of Christ. Mormon's admonition, do not judge that which is evil to be of God or that which is good and of God to be of the devil, can be read as an anecdote to the evils of cultural imperialism. We think our culture is the only way and judge the other to be of the devil, right? Additionally, charity which is bestowed upon true followers of Jesus Christ, according to Mormon, and which he encourages us to pray for with all energy of heart, allows us not only to become the sons and daughters of God, but to become like Christ, Seeing things as they really are, most specifically seeing Christ as he is, has relevance to the way we see each other in an increasingly globalized faith. In other words, if we are becoming like Christ and thus can see Christ as he is, uh, then it makes sense that we could see each other as we really are. This must also work reciprocally. If we can see Christ and see each other as we truly are, then it will help us to become like Christ. In the midst of, a national, of national and cultural boundaries that divide us, and we might add increasing political difference among people within our own national boundaries, it's crucial to learn how to see each other as we are and as how Christ sees us and be able to be wise judges as we traverse the straight and narrow path in the midst of cultural darknesses. A key to deepening discipleship is to learn to see more clearly. Learning from others in the global church allows us to see the way Christ is manifest in their lives and how others are able to hold to the iron rod in their own unique cultural context. 
My research in India has brought me into contact with some of the most Christ-like people I have ever met. And not all of them have been LDS. Many of my Hindu, Sikh, and friends from other Christian churches in India embody the pure love of Christ and have motivated me to seek understanding of the religions of India and the ways these traditions have shaped Indian culture. Here's some numbers for you, those of you who like numbers. Uh, this is just a glimpse at the one point, it's now 355 billion people in India, and that's growing. You can Google this and see this growing in going to beat China soon <laughs> um, as the most populous nation on the earth. You can see the division of the different religious traditions that were born in India and how strong they are, and including the numbers of Latter-day Saints there that now uh, number 13,570, according to the most recent numbers. Uh, Community of Christ, a former RLDS, actually exceeds the numbers, which is fascinating there. They've just grown in very interesting ways that you'll have to read the book about. For um, <laughs> We have members... Oh, let me do this first. Um, one of my favorite courses that I've taught at BYU is World Religions. I particularly love to help students appreciate the positive elements in the religious traditions of India. Christians are quick to cry idol worship when they look, look at these traditions, but uh, I think we dismiss thousands of years of God trying to communicate with people he loves when we do that. Um, I think it's more helpful to look at how leaders and things were inspired, particularly the Bhagavad Gita has a moment in it that is so like the book of Moses. It's, it's stunning. And I think there's, we need to be careful, especially because we have members who come from Hindu backgrounds who are bringing spiritual talents that can be appreciated and learned from. Bhakti, which is the word for devotion in Hinduism, is rampant among Latter-day Saints in India. They are devoted, if nothing else. And there's much else. Um, so I would just encourage you to think about, as you're looking at the other, whether it's a tradition, a culture, that you remember this part of Moroni 7, where he says, Behold, that which is of God inviteth and entices to good continually. If it's inviting and enticing and to do good, it's brought forth by the power of God. I think too often we're really good at being the church lady. Right? Right. I mean, anyway. We could probably look for the good more often and judge and, and learn and see Christ more often than we do. Uh, my doctoral dissertation, as well as my current book project, seek to understand the globalization of Mormonism through the case study of the first LDS stake organized on the Indian subcontinent in Hyderabad, India. And that was um, May 27, 2012, so very recently. Since I started my work... Um, there have been three more stakes added, and President Nelson just announced a temple in Bangalore, which is very exciting for the growth of the church there. Um, I've studied both LDS men and women, but uh, and, and that has broadened my understanding of how 
to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as this picture of the choir singing on that day that the, the, the stake was organized shows, it's the women that are special and distinctive in many ways in Indian culture. These women are rocking the sari. Look at how beautiful that is. It's a beautiful cultural marker, traditional clothing for Indian women. It's, the pic- it's what says India in this picture, right? I've interviewed and observed some amazing men in the church, but often it's the narratives of women that I say, oh, I can't, I, this was worth the trip just to hear your story, sister. Um, The majority of, let's see, I'm excited to share these narratives with you today, and I hope that as I do, you can come with me in trying to improve your sight, your vision, and seeing Christ in these narratives. Um, I'm reminded by my friend Vina Chinturam, who's here and who I'll talk about later, that in Asian cultures, women are really responsible for the spiritual aspects and for they're the keepers of culture and perpetuators of culture. So this is very important to talk about women and, and to pull in culture as well. My interest and love for the people of India began when I traveled with the young ambassadors to India, Nepal, and Sri Lanka in 1986, as I date myself here. It was during this trip that I met a woman in Calcutta who was one of the most powerful examples of the pure love of Christ. Our group spent a day with Mother Teresa and witnessed the way she saw and ministered to the poorest of the poors in the slums of Calcutta. As we accompanied her to her orphanages and homes for the dying, I watched her reach out to everyone she met with the same respect and love regardless of social standing. I watched as watched her minister that day um, and then stood in her private sanctuary in front of her statue of Christ and sang, I am a child of God with the group. I was changed forever. I wanted to see the people of India as she did and serve others as she did, particularly because I'd been blessed with the restored gospel and the truth encapsulated in that song. I wanted to... To, or this was actually one of the first times that I'd stepped outside of my Utah shell and understood that Mormons didn't actually have a monopoly on goodness. Um, that first trip to India planted in my mind the desire to understand how God was at work in the lives of these great people who he clo- so clearly loved and loves and who love him so much. During that same trip, I met the first sari women, sari wearing women, Mormon women. This is a picture of a woman in Sri Lanka. They were serving us a meal, and I remember how exciting it was to see Relief Society women doing Relief Society things, but in saris and without jello. It was really fun <laughs> and very exciting. Um, As I talk about Indian LDS women, it's probably more precise to talk about Mormon women of South Asian descent. I'm just going to give you a little map here. Many of the cultural characteristics and experience I'll describe are true of women in countries surrounding India. For instance, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Pakistan, as well as women of Indian origin in various countries of the Diaspora, as you can see, starting in the British era and before in colonial eras, colonial um, 
dispersion happened, and, and it continues today. Many of us probably have a neighbor, especially with the Silicon Slopes happening, that is of an Indian origin. And um, so a lot of this will apply to, the, to their experience as well. What these women have in common is a cultural heritage that is a source of pride and a rich tradition that is not easily diluted and from which there is much to learn. I have learned much from the people of India. Um, my dissertation, which uh, I, I learned a lot about stake building. My focus was looking at what does Mormonism look like in the birthplace of the world's great religions? Is it a world religion? What's, what's going on? And um, I decided to look at the organization of the first stake in Hyderabad because that's the first indigenized unit. In other words, we hand over the church to local leaders, which in a broader Christian tradition would be called indigenization. And it is a, then a place in these stakes for what's called enculturation or um, contextualization where the, the people themselves take the gospel and then make it their own in many ways, right? Correlation and a centralized church is making a different um, result, but we're still seeing that. If any of you have lived in a stake outside that indigenization and culturation happens, and you see some difference that's, that's important, and I think that we should look for and appreciate. Uh, first woman that I want to talk about, um, oh, this is a picture of the first members of the Hyderabad branch that were baptized all together in 1978. The, there was a family who moved to Samoa and discovered the gospel asked President Kimball if they could, if the church would send missionaries to Hyderabad to their family. And they were told that they would be the missionaries, and they were sent, and they baptized uh, these members. In, at the very bottom, I don't think I have a pointer, but in the very bottom there's a, a little boy in a tie there that's kind of like this. And I'm going to tell you a story about his wife and him. Um, his wife is Anapurna Guru Marala. She uh, was an avid, voracious reader. Her brother joined the church from a Hindu background, but she was not allowed to join the church, to even go to the church or talk to missionaries. Anything that she did was behind closed doors, but her brother would bring her reading material and she would eat it up. And um, by the time she had been reading for about seven years. She'd probably read more than most of us read in a lifetime. She was so converted to the gospel. And she said that she went to the mission president when she was finally 19 and said, I'm, I can get baptized now. And the mission president said, it's just not safe for you. I can't give you permission. You need to have faith that something will happen and it will be, it will be fine. Um, in India, the issue of caste is still alive and well. It's, it's definitely being pushed against in central cities, but in villages, and especially when it comes to marriage, you need to marry within your caste, which is called caste endogamy. That's very important. And so Hindu women, especially in Annapurna's time, were very limited. It, if you became a Christian, your, your chances for marriage were out the door, 
So she was very watched over. Um, at one point, John Morala, who we just saw in the picture, came to the mission president and said, I need a wife, but there's no Mormons in India, and I really want a member of the church. What do I do? And he said, well, there's a woman who can't join the church. And anyway, long story short, John meets Annapurna at a, just a quick meeting at a member's home, and falls deeply in love with her. No, actually, let me, can you even read that? I'm like, yeah, he said, it was not love at first sight, (laughs) but it was an absolute confirmation to me that this is the woman that I needed to get married to. So in that 15 minutes, that, that happened. This is not uncommon in India. Because arranged marriages are alive and well, there isn't a a sense that marriage, you just find a good match, and you fall in love, and you make it work, which is a beautiful concept in many ways. Um, Anyway, Annapurna, on the other hand, said that this short meeting, she said, I didn't feel anything. (laughs) He felt um, very, very strong. His is a different story. He felt that I'm his wife, so I should go with that. But I never felt anything. I wanted to serve a mission, and that was my dream. I wanted to serve a mission, so I was ready, wasn't ready for marriage. When he proposed, I just took it, because that was the only way I could join the church. He wanted to talk to me because he wanted to propose to me. I said, no, I'm not going to talk to this stranger. What am I going to talk with him about? I just wrote him one letter. I bore my testimony. I wrote all my weaknesses and told him, even if you are ready to marry, it's up to you. And basically what happened was Annapurna's parents caught wind of things and arranged a marriage for her to a Hindu man. And so they felt under pressure enough that they ran away together. So Annapurna runs to northern India and is married and then eventually joins the church. But it was a a, a terrible ordeal for her, very difficult for her. Uh, John was in medical school, so suddenly she's married to a stranger in a northern city where she can't even go to church. Anyway, her, for her story, she's one of my heroes. She's just powerful. She's living now in Texas. His, his, he's a world-renowned heart surgeon, and they just are really strong, wonderful members. Here's a picture of them being sealed in the temple um, with their first child. She explained to me that... Um, It was a terrible thing that she did to run away, and she loved her parents, and she didn't want to do that. She said, I was heartbroken, but whatever is said and done, for everybody's salvation, I had to take that step. For my posterity, and also for my parents' posterity, for their ancestors to do their temple work, I had to take that step. If not in this life, in the next life, they will know why I have done that. And there were other women that I interviewed, two others, who also had a similar story, came from a Hindu background, ran away, and were married. And they all said the same thing. It was because of their posterity. They had to be sealed. It was for them. They weren't thinking about themselves. Eventually, cute grandkids have allowed families to to reconnect, and and people have seen positive aspects of, of the church. So there's happier stories, but um, 
these are examples of how important caste endogamy is. And because of the value placed on arranged marriage and endogamous marriage, there's also a robust resistance to the LDS custom of dating in the wider Indian culture. The concept of dating is controversial for members of the church and their opinions and understanding very widely. Members explained to me that there is a misunderstanding among Indian church members of the term date because in its Western connotation it infers loose moral standards like those exhibited in American pop culture. Several church leaders have expressed the importance of dating by emphasizing and teaching the proper way to date based on gospel culture. According to an official church pamphlet for the strength of youth, dating expectations for church members differ quite well from these norms. Um, the section that reads, uh, that talks about dating does have a caveat in cultures where dating is appropriate. But there's, there's more to it to that than that in India. Um, one of the biggest surprises for me was how much cultural adaptation of dating and marriage customs I witnessed among members in India. Arranged marriages and strict limits on dating persist in the LDS church, particularly in more rural areas and among first and second generation members. Uh, for the strength of youth, encourages dating in groups, waiting to start dating to the age of 16. But according to several church leaders that I interviewed, the age recommendation has been adapted to 19 for church members in India. This higher age policy for dating in India seems to be agreed upon by members across the subcontinent without really any central church direction. Because youth programs at the church often combine young men and young women in activities that resemble the language from For the Strength of Youth, and here I'm quoting from, from The Strength of Youth, it says, a planned activity that allows a young man and a young woman to get to know each other better is a date, right? And help them to learn and practice social skills, develop friendships, have wholesome fun, and eventually find an eternal companion. These programs can seem threatening to some parents who value endogamy. We don't associate with members of the opposite sex normally at that age, and we prevent that as much as we can. Um, one 14-year-old woman that I interviewed told me that she had been dating for two years, referring to her attendance at mutual and seminary activities. Many of the married members I interviewed told me that they found their spouses at a youth conference or activity. The truth is that these activities do lead to what's called love marriages or love-come-arranged marriages because eventually they'll get parents on board and, and it'll be arranged. Um, but they often result in unions outside of one's caste. And this has caused people to leave the church. The church has been nicknamed by some outsiders the lover's church. Western marriages and dating practices, which tend to be conflated with gospel dating and marriage culture by North American missionary and leaders, are clearly at odds with notions of caste and culture in India. Several Indian members also refer to the church's guidelines on dating and marriage as wise as, and an important part of gospel culture. Bharti Sumarajan um, articulated the differences between various cultural negotiations, speaking to the question of dating being an American culture versus an Indian culture, she argued, there is still some gap between understanding the gospel culture and understanding the American culture. For example, dating. You need to date and get to know the other person, but some feel that isn't part of our culture. But it's not the American culture, it's the gospel culture. 
I have seen a lot of people regret their marriages because of not following that dating principle. So a lot of people see this as a principle. I want to just pose that to you. Is dating a gospel ordinance principle, right? Um, but it, it, again, the interpretation is left up to, to those here. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Um, you know I'm going to, she says I'm, to her kids, I'm going to court you extensively on choosing a partner because it's the most important of your life. And um, she says, I, I think even with her determination to let her children decide, she clearly plans to be very involved in defining dating and in helping with the selection of a marriage partner. A way around this caste versus church predicament is for LDS parents to arrange marriages, and that actually happens. I, I interviewed a, a, a family whose daughter had just returned from a mission to a Western country and seemed very liberal to me, and afterwards her mother came to me and said, I, I, it's a secret, but I've, we've arranged a marriage for our daughter. I was like, oh, lady, this girl is not going to go for that. Well, I returned a year later, and sure enough, she was living with, she was married and had this very happy arranged marriage within the church. Um, P.S. Arranged marriage is in the Bible. So, anyway. Um, in 2014, let's see, that's, yeah. Um, I also wanted to talk about this caste. Some marriages in the church between caste, this, this man said that his in-laws treat him like a bug. He's like just dirt still to this day because he's from a lower caste and she's from Hindu background. But it was interesting how they used the term gospel culture as a resource. I think sometimes we give gospel culture a bad rap, but there was definitely a, a, an attempt by these women or these uh, couples, and I saw this in other ones. Um, she said, his culture is different from my culture entirely. His language, his dialect is different from mine. Everything is different. So we decided when we were getting married that we would not follow any of our cultures. We will just follow gospel culture. That would be better. We'll just move forward and raise our family in the gospel according to the gospel culture and what the prophet says. We have never entertained culture in our home. So uh, the conflict with Mormon culture and caste endogamy, arranged marriage, resistance to dating is complicated by the idea of individualism versus communalism. We take for granted after the um, Enlightenment that we are supposed to be individuals and free, and yet in many of these Asian cultures, it is the community that is important, right? It's the family that's important. And joint families are very common, where the, the parents say, why would I need to save or have any worry about that? My children are my savings account. I'm giving them everything, and I'm going to live with them, and they're going to take care of me, right? So it's, we, we take for granted some things that are very much a Western mindset, that look very different in, in other cultures. Um, and I saw different preferences for that and different manifestations, different um, encouragement from, from various church leaders and different ways that it was interpreted. The William family is an example of, of a really common way that things happen. As I said, 
because arranged marriage is such, there's a, there's a tendency to give up a, or to, to rely on a higher power, someone above us, to make those decisions for us to choose a partner. And um, the William story, Robert, well, Elder Robert William, is a member of the Quorum of the Second Quorum of the Seventy, and um, his wife. They were living in um, a city in South India, and his wife Anne was one of the first sister missionaries in India. And um, when she came home from his mission, he happened to be in the same ward, and she came seeking one day a blessing from the branch president. And the branch president happened to be um, associating with Robert at the time, and he told Robert, I don't feel up for this today. Robert, would you give Anne this blessing? Now, Robert had been praying and fasting that he would know who to marry. He'd never in a thousand years thought of Anne. But as he says, he says as he put her, his hands on her head, he knew that instant that this was his wife. And later he, he thought, I can't do this, I can't tell her. But then he, he, the feeling persisted, and he finally pulled her aside and said, Anne, I, this is how I feel. What do you think? Would you be interested in being married to me? Literally, this happens. Proposals happen this way because of the lack of dating, right? So um, Anne basically started to cry. <laughs> he was like, what did I do? Oh, no. Anyway, she, she said that she was overwhelmed, and, and eventually she went home, took a while, and decided that he was the one, and so they were married. But I often see this spirit-arranged marriage going on, and I think it's, it's fascinating. Not always. And then there's the, the, the back and forth between is there the dating way and, and whatnot. Um, by now you've seen lots of beautiful women's clothing, right? All of these colorful things in these pictures. Let's talk for just a minute about women's apparel in India because this is all part of the women's experience. Um, the bindi dot. This is actually one of my favorite Bollywood stars with the bindi dot there. It's not a member of the church. Don't start the rumor that she's taking the discussions, okay? Um, anyway, I'm just going to show you. The bindi is obviously tied to Hindu ritual, right? When you go to a Hindu temple and pray, you'll put turmeric paste on your forehead, right? It's, it, it's very much considered a Hindu thing. By the same token, it's also considered by many to be just a beautiful thing to wear. It doesn't have anything to do. It's like fingernail polish, right? So there's, there's back and forth. It's interesting to watch in the church. Those who come from a Christian background will usually say, oh, don't wear the bindi, right? That's not okay. Those who come from a Hindu background are like, I'm just rocking the bindi. It's just part of my attire, right? So there's a back... I heard um, one member say, oh, they've just they've convinced the leaders that it's okay, and it's not. Well, I think I, I just applaud, not that they need me to applaud for them. The leaders there have been very good at, at allowing agency and allowing cultural adaptation according. Um, the other thing is the sari. If you can see these other, uh, these are other ways to dress besides the sari. Basically a, a tunic with pants. Um, and it's very common for women who've been to the temple 
because the sari, the way it covers a woman, there's a bare midriff often, right? Well, for us, we think, especially in this culture, don't show your tummy. We'll freak out about your daughter showing her tummy at the the spa. Um, But for Indian women, that's not the same thing, right? So um, a lot of times there's adjustments of the sari, there's extending the sari tunic, all sorts of kinds of things, um, and negotiations with the sari, or people will go to this more comfortable option. I just think it's fascinating in terms of, of, of the, the cultural negotiation that has to go on because of being a member of the church. Uh, caste complexities, all these kinds of things, cross lines of class, gender, race in India and complicate things even further. Um, a lot of my study looked at gender in the Uh, Indian context among Mormons. Feminist scholars have noted the inequality between men and women and said that it's one of the most crucial disparities in many society and this is particularly so in India. I'll put another culture sorry this is, I forgot these and back up to close for just a minute. These are sister missionaries which there are many of them in India and they wear a western attire right? Well some of them, at least a couple years ago when I was following these sisters, on P-Day they could wear the sari or the kurta. And um, I just, I love that. I would love to see. Anyway, there's really a negotiation between Western culture and the sari because you, you show more of your skin with the Western culture, right? So, um, fascinating little thing. Anyway, here's some primary sisters in the background. I'll let you look at them while I talk feminism. Um, These women say that there's an inequality between men and women, and it's one of the most crucial disparities in many societies. And this is especially true in India with um, disparity in female literacy, low ratio of females to males at birth. In other words, female infanticide. If you don't have a boy, there's disposing of the the child um, and not caring as much for the female child. Although in centers of strength, in the cities where the church is concentrated, this is less so. There's, There's more of a resistance to this. Feminism in India has happened in three waves. Initially with the British, the British were looking critically at sati, which is widow burning on the funeral pyre and all of those kinds of things. So there was a a, a push to reform Hinduism and its um, response to women. At that point, in the 70s, there was a second wave of feminism um, and there was a greater legal reforms. They created um, seats reserved seats for women in politics. So you'll see a lot of women engaged in politics. Um, and then third and finally, it's today. There's a, there's a much um, uh, interest in the rights and protection of women. And it's evident, as I interviewed both men and women in the Hyderabad stake, that they were very familiar with the language from the women's movement in India. 
The majority of the LDS members that I interviewed in India used the word patriarchy in a pejorative, very negative manner to talk about something they were overcoming. Studies have shown that in India, a majority of violence committed against women occurs in the home. According to those I interviewed, violence in the home can occur when anyone, male or female, transgresses against patriarchal authority. The patriarch in a joint family might include an uncle or whoever is responsible to maintain the family honor. Thus, both men and women in my LDS sample were attuned to the potential abuse of patriarchy. And they saw a distinct difference between the culture of the church and the surrounding culture in Hyderabad. Even though the all-male priest structure of the church could be seen as a patriarchal structure, it was seen as an enlightened and based on principles that would overcome problems inherent in the patriarchal system. Patriarchy was never used to refer to leaders of the church, and priesthood was usually the opposite of patriarchy. Um, a sister serving as a Relief Society president in one of the Hyderabad wards told me about the verbal... This is not her, actually. Sorry, you don't get to look at her yet. Um, she told me about the verbal, psychological, and physical abuse that some sisters face in their own homes, uh, even church members. She said, however, that she had observed a strong correlation between temple and improved conditions for women in the LDS church. She says that women who have been sealed to their husbands in the temple have happier home lives and seem to be more valued in the family. And you hear a rhetoric of men talking about we need women to be saved, particularly after they have partaken of temple um, endowments. Several of my interview questions came directly from questions used in the Claremont Mormon Women's Oral History Project. And many of those questions, um, like how do you perceive the role of women in the church, the majority of women interviewed in the Claremont study, they were North Americans, usually California, Utah, um, they almost always had some sort of a strong political response to the question. These U.S. Mormon women either expressed frustration and pain at their second-class status because of male-only priesthood in the church, or they felt the need to speak against claims that they were oppressed. The majority of those I interviewed in India, however, saw the church, even with the all-male priesthood, as empowering women in general. The usual defensiveness against perceived oppression of Mormon women that I noticed in the Claremont interviews was absent in Indian interviews. There was usually a sense of pride in the status of women in the church and in the ways women's lives improved with church membership. Although the concept of women serving in leadership positions has not always been a natural fit in Indian culture. Annapurna Guti, um, this is a different Annapurna, she introduced her narrative when I interviewed by saying, I was born into a Brahmin family. Brahmins are like very orthodox, she said, and if you say Brahmins, they're like the very top layer of the caste system. I'm telling you this to emphasize the intersection here of her caste, her gender, in this narrative. She was another who went against her parents' wishes and actually married, although she didn't, she didn't feel compelled to run away. She confronted her father and stood up to his patriarchal authority. Um, and you can see this pattern. Uh, for instance, when she was a district relief society president, she was called and she said the district president came to her and said, all you have to do is talk in the conference. That's your job. And she said, 
I felt like there was certainly more to this calling than that. And when I took out my handbook and started reading, there was a lot more to it. And so she used this handbook to, to kind of go above his head and make sure that she had, was able to, to work with her calling. She explained that things have changed since then because they had been trained on how to hold proper counsels, have an agenda, read the handbook. The women come out and speak and their opinions matter. According to Annapurna, it took many, many strong women who have stood their ground and said, this is in the handbook. She also qualified that these leaders are good people, but they are just so used to doing it the patriarchal way. Breaking that pattern was difficult. They're ego. They're not used to listening to women. They're not used to taking ideas from them. From there, it has changed, she added, um, that she's also started to be a little more patient with them. But her assertiveness is rather unique. I think we, we can credit her, her caste and, and um, social status. But what's not unique is her using the handbook as a tool of, um, to, to invoke power against uh, what is often seen as patriarchal control, right? Um, so the handbook is a tool of liberation, just so you know that. There were numerous times when LDS women in India spoke about how they used the handbook. See, yeah. uh, so, in in describing the the status of women in the church, I'm not inferring that all members at all times are completely equal and the gender is all taken care of there. I just want to emphasize the contrast to the surrounding culture compared to the perceived higher status of women in the church and the restraint on patriarchy that both members and non-members identified in the Hyderabad stake. And I see really important parallels between another scholar, Elizabeth Brusco, who studies Pentecostalism in Colombia. And she says that Pentecostalism is more powerful in feminism because it actually will empower women. It will help men. It will train and control men to not go out and drink, gamble the money away. They, she sees more effective measures towards women's equalities with those who turn. And I think we would definitely see the same thing in the LDS Church. Um, Annapurna is a great example of a, a concept called contextualization or inculturation, which are real buzzwords for people in mission, in Christian mission, and Christian church building all over the world. They're different, new to us. We don't think about them. But the concept is that the gospel needs to be contextualized or inculturated or in the inner parts of this culture. And they need to take with it and do what they will. Well, um, we, we do the same thing in terms of allowing for you know, variations in the handbook, handing over lessons to lay church members who control the theology every week, right? We just don't acknowledge it very much. Um, former church president Gordon B. Hinckley gestured toward an openness to the other in encouraging people everywhere to bring with you all the good that you have and let us add to it, right? And he also said keep, we had several church leaders who have said keep all the good and, and add to it, right? Um, however, I would sometimes try to, to get Hindu converts to talk about their Hinduism and 
what did you bring from your Hinduism that's good, right? But the sacrifice for them was so great. It was really a hard leap for them to look back and say, well, this. Sometimes it was confusion. Sometimes it was horror. But um, I did find some really interesting examples of enculturation and contextualization, like Annapurna. She um, would, on, on the festivals of various Hindu gods that were in their community and everyone celebrating together, she would take those festivals and teach a message, a gospel message with that about devotion of this person in Hindu mythology, right? She would use, um, they loved the, the, uh, the battles in the Ramayana, and so she would take the battles in the Ramayana and parallel them with the battles in the Book of Mormon and then try to find that little parallel. She was great at that. Um, We do similar things with our pagan symbols in Christmas and Easter, right? And we're not too freaked out about it. Um, Another woman talked about how she continued the ritual of cleaning her home each Friday which is a Hindu practice in anticipation in the worship of the worship of the goddess Durga. And, but she said, I still do that, but it's not for Durga, but it's to create a better atmosphere for my family because cleanliness is a gospel principle, right? Um, another interesting contextualization was Mother in Heaven. Because there's so much goddess worship in India, I thought that's an interesting place for a contextualization. How do Mormon women deal with Mother in Heaven? Well, often I was met when I would, one of my questions was, what's your concept of a Mother in Heaven? And I was met many times, and this reminds me of what Lisa was talking about this morning. There's this folk... Um, Doctrine that we don't talk about Mother in Heaven because she's, it's too sacred and Heavenly Father wants to protect her. And I would hear that echoed back to me often. Or I would hear a husband say, she doesn't know about Mother in Heaven, don't talk about it. Right? Um, but it, it was interesting. Many of them did. And Annapurna, the first Annapurna I talked about, when I asked her, she said... Um, that the concept of Heavenly Mother was a source of comfort for her. She said, though we do not talk about her because it is very sacred, sometimes when I cry, I think of my Heavenly Mother. When I'm very sad, I think about my Heavenly Mother, that I'm keeping my head in her lap, and she is caressing me. I know one day I will see her. We will see her. And that's an example of contextualization, of putting the truth and the power of the restored gospel into the hands of another culture and another human. And it creates beautiful things. Um, I'm going to quickly move through these next slides. One of the interesting negotiations with culture, because marriage is so important in the culture, family is so important, there's a lot of adaptation that's done to continue to include all of the family members who might not be Mormon. They're still different branches of Christianity. They're still Hindu, right? Um, one of the the important rituals of a Hindu wedding, this is a, a wedding couple that I took a picture of at a, a Hindu temple 
is they receive these garlands um, and they exchange garlands, kind of similar to the way we exchange rings. And this goes all the way back to the Ramayana when Ram and Sita are married, this whole tradition. Um, And I, I find it interesting because we see some of these replicated in the the marriage celebrations that occur in India. This is two of my favorite students at BYU um, who also served missions in India, lived in India for years and years. Anyway, they were married. They, they, they had several. Weddings in India take a long time, can be very costly, very many days if you've experienced this, right? And this continues, there's, it continues to happen in the, the church. So they, they had an engagement party in Utah. They had what's called a haldi ceremony. This is when they spread turmeric on the bride to bring out her glow. And each sorry, member that's there will, will spread and help. It was interesting, her husband, who comes from a Hindu background, said that there was a little bit of concern when he had his holy ceremony because they put some on his forehead and, and some of the members said, no, 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 that's Hindu, we can't do it that way. And, and he said, I just went with the flow, <laughs> whatever. You know, there were, there were other Hindus there that, were, that needed to have it happen that way. Um, they then were married. They have to be married civilly first in India before they can be sealed in the temple outside of, of India. So the marriage ceremony, you can see here the garland ceremony here that they're doing that replicates what I saw in the Hindu temple, the tali, the tying the knots. All of these things are replicated in these um, ceremonies within the LDS church that, that occur. Very common for them. This young woman chose to wear a white sari and um, when they, they had receptions they had came home and had a reception for their um, Lutheran friends and family members and had a Lutheran minister say some things and so I, I saw because of this ability to marry in the temple outside, there was a multiplication of, of marriage ceremonies and things that they could do that were included and were accepted in the culture, kind of similar to the way we do a ring ceremony. And then they were sealed in the Hong Kong temple. Um, what I find interesting, this is Bina Chindaram, who's back there. You should get to know her. She's amazing. Um, she is from... Mauritius. So her ancestors were taken there as indentured servants with the British Empire to work in the sugar industry. But the population of Indians is the majority in Mauritius. And um, they're very proud of their cultural heritage. When Vina was married, she made sure that she was able to wear a white sari. And she went to her stake president and explained why this was important, showed pictures of her parents, and wanted to make sure that that everyone was okay, that she was going to do this. And, of course, she looks amazing, and it's just gorgeous. Here's a picture of her holiday ceremony and her bridesmaids in saris as well. Um, She comes to this from... um, her father, who's just passed away last week. And um, her father was a very important leader in the Catholic Church in India. He saw members of the Catholic Church 
that were Indian who needed to connect to their Hindu roots or their Indian roots. The tricky thing here, people, is where does religion end and culture start? It's really difficult to define that barrier in Indian culture. So what Venus' father did was to encourage aspects of Indian culture within his Catholic faith. So they would have a Diwali ceremony, and they would tie this to the light of the world, to Christ. He made sure that his um, his wife, I don't know if I have a picture of your mom. Anyway, her mom was the choir conductor in these choir uh, in the choir in the Catholic Church, and she would make sure that the hymns were translated into Tamil and French and, and all of the different languages, but they had that beautiful tonality that was very characteristic of Indian song. Um, and Vina has done the same thing in her own Mormon culture. This is her family home evening Diwali practice that she, wherever she lives, she'll invite people over, she'll help her children connect to the fact that this is a celebration of light, and this we can relate this to the celebration of Christ. She does a beautiful job of doing this. It's not easy. It's, it's easier when everyone is doing the same thing in your country, but in diaspora, and in a ward in Utah, for instance, it might be a little more difficult to be you and to rock whatever your culture is, right? And uh, Vina does a beautiful job of that. There's a picture of her children. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to to start this video, but this is a, a video of her mother singing. Um, is, is there any way, the, the, the one where the woman kind of has her eyes closed, I don't know if you can touch that and make it start and hear the beautiful music or not... Maybe not. Anyway, that's a picture of Vina, her mother, and her uh, brother at her father's funeral. And um, her, her mother sang this to me just last week when we were eating lunch with her father. And um, it was a beautiful Christian hymn. And I wish you could hear it because it just had these tones that are so different than what we hear on Sunday. And with the new hymn book coming out, I'm hoping that we have some different things going on. Because what it's important. What, the reason I do this work... Oh, maybe it's... No. Jump. Sorry, just kidding. The reason I do this work, and, and I feel that this is so important, is because this is part of the globalization of the church. A globalized church, is not, there's no center and margin. It's all one. And we learn from each other, and we give to one another, and we reciprocate. And it's crucial. And it's crucial within our own wards and communities that we navigate the differences in culture. This is one of my favorite quotes that was off the record from a general authority, so I'm not going to quote him, but here's his words. Um, he said that culture is very much not just outside in some far-off land. It's very much here, and we very much deal with it. He said, all of us inherit a culture that is man-made, and it is very difficult to see the filters that culture places on us because we're born into it. We're swimming in culture, right? We don't notice it. And thus it is hard to break beyond it. You need revelation, 
to break beyond the boundaries of one's own culture. Some people work harder to get that revelation than others, he said. And when that revelation occurs, the mists of darkness begin to part, and you can make your way down the pathway of life. I love that. And back to Moroni 7. The spirit of discernment is so important in that. The spirit of charity, all of these things help us to discern and to navigate culture and to love one another and to see Christ in each other, right? Um, I love President Nelson's words from the last conference. He said, I urge you to stretch beyond your current spiritual ability to receive personal revelation. And I would encourage that in this realm of of navigating the difference, that you receive revelation to guide you and to help others on this path. Neil A. Maxwell, he quotes Neil A. Maxwell in this talk, who said, to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, it is clear that the Father and the Son are giving away the secrets of the universe. I testify that our Father in Heaven loves all of his children. He loves our beautiful differences. We need to love them and learn from them. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just tell me when to stop. Okay. Just say. Quick on, quick on a just the buzzer. <clears throat> okay. Um, would you say more Hindus or Muslims are joining the church in India? And when I first did my study, um, the the numbers of members that I interviewed were mostly Catholic or sorry Christian. Um, one observer critic of the church says we're just poaching from other Christian churches over there, right? Um, but continually, my second trip over and my interviews reflected more of a, a Hindu background. I'm seeing more and more of that. Muslims, no. Um, haven't seen any of them. Uh, the first mission president, Gertrude Singhil, was a Sikh, a convert to the church. So, um, But primarily, you see Hindu and Christian converts to the church. Are people persecuted for joining the church? Absolutely, violently, dangerously. It's no joke. Yeah, we take so much for granted. Absolutely. Um, Just FYI, here's a comment. About 50 years ago when I was in Japan, some members there would go to stake president to help find and arrange a marriage to another LDS person. Arranged marriages aren't just in South Asia. Yeah, definitely. Um... Were the converts to uh, be LDS Hindus or Hindu Christians? Okay, I think I answered that. Was bride price a challenge in marriage? That's a great question. So it's not the same as in Africa. Um, there is dowry, and the, the leaders of the church counsel against that. They're saying, take that money, get to the temple, right? That's the counsel. However, many of them will interpret this in different ways. If we give this person a gift, it's not a dowry. It's a gift, right? So that kind of exchange will happen. And, and it's, it's, I see less of a, a, a people coming down on this in India than I do in, see in Africa, I could say. One more. One more. 
Um, what is the relationship of the LDS Church to India institutions such as Hindu groups, government officials, social welfare organizations, schools, etc.? It's a great question that I have not enough time to answer, but I will say that there is growing Hindu nationalism in the church in the in India, and very similar to growing nationalisms here, um, and. The church is very sensitive to that, very careful, and very very committed to serving and working with other social organizations. The humanitarian arm of the church has lots of connections that they work with people in India and do some great things. Thank you very much.